Hi everyone and welcome to Play Crush. It's Joe Murphy here. Well, we have a very special episode for you this week. Today I was joined by the brilliant Matthew Watchers, Artistic Director of The Old Vic. I had the total pleasure of working with Matthew for a few years as his Associate Director. Perhaps with the exception of Jeremy Herrin, there hasn't been a bigger single influence on my career than Matthew. The way he approaches plays, buildings and the industry had a profound impact on me and changed forever the way I direct shows and what I think the job of a theatre is. Matthew's CV reads like a greatest plays of all time hit list. His rare gift is to make incredibly bold and popular work with real guts and artistic integrity. For the old Vic, his productions include Lungs, Present Laughter, A Christmas Carol, which had me weeping like a baby, Groundhog Day, The Caretaker and The Master Builder. He has worked in every major theatre you can think of on both sides of the Atlantic and has Olivier and Tony Awards to his name. Previous productions include Matilda, Ghost the Musical, God of Carnage, The Norman Conquests, Boeing Boeing, The Lord of the Rings Musical, Endgame, Follies, True West, Art, Hamlet, and he debuted at the RSC as the youngest ever director with a play on their main stage. He also directs opera and has a glittering career as a film director, including the smash hit Pride. So, you know, he's done a bit. He's a brilliant, insightful and incredibly charming man, so getting to chat to him about plays was just a complete joy. In a bold and typically maverick move, Matthew's Playcrush was a trilogy, The Norman Conquest by Alan Aitbourne. These three plays were first performed at the Library Theatre in Scarborough in 1973. The plays that make up The Norman Conquest are Table Manners, Living Together and Round and Round the Garden. The trilogy charts the events of a single weekend from the perspective of three locations, Dining Room, living room and garden. As assistant librarian Norman attempts to seduce the three women present at the house with varying results. They are a hilarious set of plays that also contain a quiet profundity and emotional gut punch, best described in this Michael Holt quote. The Norman Conquests is a trilogy of plays, perhaps most famous for having no offstage action. By making the offstage action of one play the onstage action of another, the whole work describes an eventful weekend in a house. Each play stands alone, but each contains the offstage action unseen but implied in the other two. When a character moves from one room in the first play, he enters another setting in the next one. Thus, to see all three plays is to see all the action both on stage and off. It's an incredible demonstration of playwriting skill, but it is not just the technical feat that sticks in the mind on seeing these plays. As Frank Rich says, the Norman Conquest is not only funny, but impossibly wise about sex, marriage, love and loneliness. I couldn't agree more. And this is a really interesting set of plays from Matthew for his play crush. They once again typify Matthew's particular brilliance. High voltage populism combined with razor sharp artistic integrity. Thank you again to everyone listening to the podcast and supporting Sherman Theatre and the Olvic. It really means the world to us. And now, without further ado, here is Matthew Warchus with The Norman Conquests. Uh, well, hello everybody and uh, welcome to Play Crush. I'm here with the brilliant Matthew Warchus. Hello Matthew. Hi Joe, how are you? Yes, doing alright. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm um, doing okay and um, it's not the best time 
to be running a theatre, is it? As you will concur, but um, yeah, we're doing okay. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't call it uh, ideal theatre conditions where, you know, nobody can actually sit next to each other. (laughs) But I think, you know, I mean, the Old Vic's response so far has has been really amazing. Um, Particularly like the Lungs project. I mean, it'd be great to maybe just hear a little bit about, you know, how that's come together or how you're feeling about that project. Well, this Lungs was a play that um, we had on at the Old Vic uh, nearly a year ago for just a very short period of time. I think we just did it for three weeks. And it's a two-hander, and Matt Smith and Claire Foy uh, were in it. And we definitely wanted to bring it back. It was very popular, and they were fantastic in it. And so we had plans to kind of bring it back or take it to New York. And All of those plans were obviously on hold. Um, and then we realised that, well, I sort of realised that it was very versatile, flexible production, and that it's just two people. Um, it's one conversation that lasts for, between two people, that lasts for an hour and 20 minutes. And there's no spe- specific scenery. It's sort of just basically performed on a platform. And the other thing about it is the characters are apart from each other, um, spatially, for 90% of the production. So they're socially distanced from each other, if you like. So, yeah, I just thought, how about trying to stream it live with a couple of cameras, one on him, one on her, um, on stage in the empty auditorium at the Old Vic and try and sell tickets for it. Um, we, we have to try and do something. We can't, we can't do anything that costs money. There's no money at the moment. So anything we do has to break even, pay for itself, or ideally make some money to support us a little longer through this period of being closed. And uh, yeah, so it seemed like a good candidate. And and then I thought maybe we can do some other things, readings or stuff in a similar way afterwards. So we've created this program called In Camera. And uh, yeah, it starts in a couple of weeks time. It's fantastic. I think it's an amazing response. And uh, you know, because obviously there's a lot of amazing stuff going out like NT Live and things, but they're all pre-recorded, aren't they? Whereas I suppose this, in a way, when I sit down and watch it, Matt and Claire will actually be performing at the very same time. It feels like it recreates that experience somehow. Yeah, they're going to be performing live. So anything, you know, and it could go wrong. That's the other thing about it. It's a bit of a tightrope walk, this thing. So when when we press go at the beginning of the Zoom session, uh, each performance, they're going to do, you know, a handful of performances. And uh, we don't know for sure that we're going to make it to the other side without some technical glitch or something. But yeah, that's what, you know, that's live theatre, isn't it? So we'll see. It's, it, it has to be said, this is not a good sort of model for the return of theatre in general, because these guys know the show already. So we don't really have to do any rehearsing. You know, it, it's, um, we have to do a little bit of tweaking to what to the production. But there's no way you could go through a full rehearsal process with a full cast, a larger cast, um, in practically uh speaking with social distancing so yeah this is a slightly different thing yes this feels just like um a sort of really exciting reaction um uh to 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 the to the sort of crisis we find ourselves in rather than a solution just like um uh, something proactive to be doing for now getting the work out there staying connected with audiences and giving people a chance to see you know that amazing show and those amazing performances i think it's brilliant i think it's really exciting but yeah, how, so how are you finding um, lockdown? I was listening to um, previous 
podcast you did with George and Sheila, and I was I was a bit angry because I had this. I decided that <laughs> that I was never going to hire anybody who had a positive story to tell about lockdown, about <laughs> how they'd used the time, the things they'd done, because I failed to do anything positive in this time. But then I hear that Sheila's learned the drums and she's got on with her violin stuff. George is doing his prep for, for being a wolf or something in a movie. And obviously I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with George and Sheila again. So I'm going to have to recalibrate my thinking about that. But I, anyway, I do have enormous sympathy for all of those people who've done nothing, who just haven't been able to do anything. They've just been stuck and anxious or scared and uh, bored or you know I mean who knew it a global pandemic sucks it it really really does and it's very hard to find anything good to say about it I think that's very true and yeah I know I was I I was also angry at Sheila because I was like oh man (laughs) the things I should have been doing with this time that she's achieving were extraordinary well, um, let's talk about happier things. Um, let's talk about some plays. Um, so, you know, obviously, uh, I'll spare you no blushes here. You're a director of pretty great renown uh, and success and some really iconic productions and plays under your belt. Um, it would be great to get a sense of like how that started for you. How did you get into theatre? How did directing start? And, and how have you found that journey into your career up to this point? Wow. Well, I um, <clears throat> I started um, uh, very young in directing. I I, I grew up in uh, a village in the middle of nowhere in Yorkshire. Uh, I grew up in near Middle in Middlesbrough for a while, and then moved to Yorkshire when I was young. And <clears throat> it was very isolated place. It was um, one bus in a day, one bus out. And village is not, don't misunderstand village to be some beautiful idyll. <laughs> this was um, a very plain village called Drax, D-R-A-X, um, and which is in the shadow of Europe's largest coal-fired power station. <clears throat> and a very, very flat part of Yorkshire. So... Um, you know, it's it's a quite a tough place to grow up, and not a lot of culture. My father had been an actor before I was born, so there were conversations about theatre in our family, <clears throat> and we would go occasionally. But it was twenty five miles to York or Leeds, and both of them, and to see anything, and so we didn't really see much, to be honest. We would go to the pantomime um, every year in York, um, which was brilliant pantomime there, and. Um, we would go to Scarborough um, to see Alan Aitbourne plays, and uh, and I was part of that. I was I think I was the last year in British education where you couldn't study drama as a subject. Um, the year following me, it became an option, so there wasn't a lot going on. I, and I managed to get involved in a, a youth theatre uh, that started up um, from our school and a couple of other schools and and then later in my teens the National Youth Theatre in London um I got put myself on a train came down to London for a couple of summers and did that as an actor so 
I yeah I, I was sort of interested in drama from <clears throat> from about the age of eleven, and I was it's that classic story. I was a very very shy kid, and not very happy as a kid, and drama was the thing that really um, strengthened me actually, and uh, so yeah. I, and then I went to university in Bristol and was much happier there and did music and drama and it really occurred to me for the first time there that I might be that I might do some directing as opposed to acting or or conducting and being a musical conductor that I was interested in being so yeah I did um, a little bit of directing there and then got a chance to assist and direct with the National Youth Theatre and did a play one summer with them somebody saw it and they offered me a job at Bristol uh, Old Vic Theatre when I graduated and I sort of started to just use jobs, assistant directing and directing to pay off my overdraft from the university and um, (laughs) not really thinking this is my career yet but after about six or seven years of that um, I'd done, I'd got a lot of you know, I was lucky. I just got a lot of work, and I thought, "Hey, I'm actually I am a director now, I suppose, and this is what I am." It's an unusual route into directing, maybe, but um, I think all everyone's route into directing is pretty bespoke to them, and <clears throat> particularly, you know, um, this was 1988 when I graduated. There weren't any courses around. There may have been one. I don't really know. But my impression was there weren't any courses where you could study and train to be a director. Um, So directors came from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, It has to be said, mostly Oxford or Cambridge at that time. Um, But, but, you know, nevertheless, they'd studied different subjects. And uh, so people came to directing with a whole lot of different skills uh, rather than having trained as a director. Yeah, that feels quite different now, doesn't it? I suppose all these sort of postgraduate courses and things, it feels like, you know, there's a more, um, there's a sort of more traditional route, I suppose, is one I took where you go through university and then you do a postgrad often in directing at a drama school. Um, and I've also found a lot with directors at the moment that that moment happens when you're 18 and, and, and you realise that you can't act. You know, I was similar to you, quite lonely um, kid looking for a tribe, I guess. And so I joined theatre and then, um, thought I was really good at acting, but actually I was just just quite loud. Which, when you're a kid, is is all you need. Uh, and then I got to eighteen, and I realised, oh, I can't really do this so well. And that that pushed me across to directing. It, was there ever a sense you wanted to be an actor, or was it always going to be, as you say, conducting or or, or possibly directing? Um, no, there was. I was um, acting. In, with the National Youth Theatre, uh, in a few productions with them, and and played some good parts and enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I did think that I might become an actor. Funnily enough, the <laughs> when I'd been direct in my mid twenties, um, Sam Mendes was doing a production at the Donmar, and he offered me a part in it as an actor um, because he had heard from somebody that I had done acting in, in the National Youth Theatre. And at that moment, I thought, oh, if I, if I do this, if I do this, I could still be, call myself as a potential actor. If I don't do this, 
I'm a director, that's it now. And so I thought about it for a, a couple of weeks and um and then I uh, yeah, I said no, so and I thought that's it, I'm a director now. I don't think you know, I've been really lucky and uh, working with some fantastic actors and I understand like half of how they're doing it and but the the other stuff is um I really love that I couldn't possibly do it. It's, it's great to be playing with, like, it's in a, in a sport or a game, to be playing alongside people who are doing stuff that makes you up your game. And 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 I suppose, you know, very early on, when I was still again in my mid twenties, I directed a production of Much Ado About Nothing in the West End with Mark Rylance and Janet McTeer, and. Um, that was a sort of a great example of, of many examples, but when the actors teach you how to direct, you learn just come away as a better director. You had to sort of work out in a way. I mean, that, what an amazing um, collaborator, as you say, for a young director to meet. I mean, I can't imagine anyone than doing it better than Mark Rylance in terms of pulling up by your bootstraps and um, you know teaching about that craft of acting. Um, and, and was that once you got into that rehearsal process, you got into Much Ado, did, did that just click instantly? Did you go, OK, here's a here's like a long term collaborator. Uh, here's an actor I just want to be working with all the time. Or did it take a bit of time to get to know each other? I mean, how did that dynamic work? <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. So now there's a fork in the road, Joe, here and I can turn left or I can turn right. And um, but uh, I I don't know whether to I don't know whether it's fair or unfair um, on Mark to tell you the story or even whether it's going to just take up way too much time to, and this whole entire podcast we want to hear it we want to hear it <laughs> but um, the truth is I was not a very good director um, compared to a good director. <laughs> But of course not. I was, you know, I was young and inexperienced and it, you really have to grow into. I, I think the thing about young directors is that you've got a fuel tank. It's like you've got a tank of fuel that has been filling up through, I don't know, through your life, through since you were maybe 10 or even younger and certainly through your adolescence because you've got all of these feelings about stuff. So I had a, you know, pretty miserable school life. It was creating all of these feelings inside me. And then suddenly, as a director, you're dealing with, you know, you're having to corral and shape and coordinate passions, anger, um, desperation, um, you know, out of, things that are out of control. And that's your everyday job is to, is to swim in chaos of, of drama and to sort of make effective impactful shapes in that chaos so um what that's what you've got going for you as you get older your fuel tank sort of if you're not careful it does kind of well it does whether you're careful or not empty out a bit and you've got to find other fuel so yes i had fuel but i didn't have skill um uh, or experience and um and then yeah, i remember one day <laughs> We had to abandon rehearsals for much ado. We were trying to do a run through, and as this sort of thing went wrong in the run through, 
and it was suddenly the actors kind of the actors were shouting and then mark and janet mark janet stormed out and then mark stormed out we were rehearsing near the young vic on the cut uh just off the cut there and i said feebly to everybody i think should we have a cup of tea now let's take a tea break and um and then i walked out to um i walked down the street and and mark and and janet were were talking huddled together and they couldn't see me walking towards them and they couldn't see me as i got quite close and then i got close enough just in time to hear mark say janet it's not you it's matthew he can't direct Oh dear. And I was standing there. It's like a very much sort of like an Alan Aikborn moment. They hadn't seen me. I had said that I had the choice. Can I creep back to the rehearsal room without them having seen me? Um so <laughs> you know, or what do I do? So I stopped stuck in my tracks. And uh and then one of them took a glanced up and saw me and like, oh no, now he's heard that and stuff like that. But it was interesting actually because <clears throat> I think humility is a re- is a really um, encouraging sign in in somebody. I'm very, very worried about conf- confidence and uh, can do. You know, it, it, I always find slightly suspicious and in, intimidating, certainly. And so I naturally come from a place of I don't really know if I can do this. And so somebody saying um, he's he can't direct. It didn't strike me as like massively unfair or insulting. It's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I think fair, fair, fair enough. You know, this is a bit of a shambles, to be honest, right now. What, what can we do about it? So it led to a conversation where I was kind of saying, look, Mark and, you know, everybody, I don't need to bleed this from the front. I'm happy to, be this in, to, to just be the, the, the hub of a wheel here. But there has to be a hub. You can, we can't just, it can't just be a sort of chaotic free-for-all. I'm not saying it needs to be a pyramid structure with me at the top. I, can, I just need to, let's agree that I'll be the hub and that we'll feed things through and we'll solve this, these differences and we'll solve this production. And so we did that. And I, and I think that I've had this idea, you know, ever since then, of sort of leading from the centre um, and be, just being happy to to listen to and spot the best idea in the room, and if there is no ideas forthcoming, to to apply my own judgment and instincts. And yeah, it's it's been a um, you know that thing that sort of perform p- performance anxiety or imposter syndrome of will somebody realise that I'm not as good as I should be, and that was kind of st- stripped away right from the start early in my career and um <laughs> this 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 idea of sort of uh, grandiose self-regard or belief in myself uh, took a couple of knocks early on I think that's good you know actually I think it is good because then my career goes on you say you describe me as a, whatever you describe me as a successful director but I but it's been lots of failure in there as well and 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 but by that I mean different types of failure so there are shows that people that might be a hit show, but artistically, for me, it was a bit of a failure. Or the shows that were a, a critical, complete critical flop. Um, but I think artistically, I I think I know actually you achieved a hell of a lot. What people didn't see about that production is that 
it did this, this, and this, and which would never have been possible otherwise, and and then everything in between. So, yeah, I think um, I think um, it was formative experience in lots of different ways, and, and really deepened deepened my approach to directing, and as well as my sort of relationship with friendship with Mark. Um, so much ado. An amazing sounds like a slightly watershed moment for you, and, and as you say, quite formative. So, so what happened next? Where, where, what, 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 what did that do for the career? Where did that take you? David Pugh um, sent me a script of a new play called Art with uh, by a, a French uh, woman, Yasmina Razor, and, and I read it, and it was I thought it was a fantastic play. It made me laugh and cry, which is always a sort of perfect combination for me. It's a very funny tragedy, I described it as once. And it was hard to know how commercial that was going to be. And when I was directing it, I was directing it for the pain, for the shadow in it, for the shade. Because I thought, even at that age, when I didn't know a lot and I, that I know now, but I do know about comedy, if you direct it for the... For, to dig into the suffering of the characters, the anxiety of the characters, the desperation of the characters, all the very serious things, then the comedy, if, it, if the writing is comic and the situations are comic, the comedy looks after itself. You don't really have to generate f- funny stuff. So and that, and the, res- the, the result of that was that in the rehearsal room, it was totally unfunny. <laughs> In the rehearsal room run-throughs, it was like uh, it was it was a real downer, and um, and and bless David Pugh for not replacing me mid rehearsals when he popped in and saw and saw this kind of angst. But I think that is that is really my approach to comedy, and I think yeah, I think. But the other thing about art is that it was. It was a volatile play before it became a part of the canon. And for the first few previews, it caused tumult in the audience. Um, A couple of performances of previews, we had to stop the show because the audience was shouting out. I've never never come across this before in a play. Um, They were enraged by part of the arguments in the play. One of the characters is for this white painting, another one's against, and the the third one is kind of negotiating the middle ground. And of course, none of it's really about the painting, but that's the MacGuffin. And yeah, we stopped a show a couple of times because people in the audience were shouting out um, against. We put one person through their program at the stage and stormed out. And so it was only when it was reviewed mostly well, not completely well, but mostly reviewed well, and became a <laughs> a, a hit that. All that went away, which is a bit sad in a way. But you know, it became a, accepted as a as a commercial entity. But I don't think it it sets out to be that actually, which is why I liked it. And what were they angry about? What, what, like, what, what was it? Because I mean, I've never seen that in a theatre. So, what, what mm. was it getting under the skin? It seemed to be mocking modern art because one of the characters in it mocks modern art. Um, so. It's an interesting, you know, it's a really interesting thing because um, part of the message of that play is that friendship, love, means tolerance. And 
uh, it's hard to be tolerant if you're afraid. So these are men who, these are characters who are afraid of certain things, afraid of dying, afraid of being stuck, afraid of, you know, it's mostly sort of an age and mortality thing. It's kind of middle-aged um, characters. And so that, that means they can't, they struggle to be tolerant uh, of other people because they're in a state of panic themselves. And, and because they can't be tolerant, they're unable to accept the idea that somebody could love something that they don't love. And, you know, art, which is also another word for skill, is the skill one of the skills about life is to <clears throat> be tolerant of people who say what you love is rubbish um and i think it's important that you have to be able to do that you have to so what you have something that you love a painting your friend says that's shit that it has to be okay the skill of life is to say yeah well i i don't hate my friend for saying that i just disagree i just have a different point of view and that's an obviously that's a difficult skill in life to aspire to, but um, <clears throat> yeah, somebody sh the person shouted out, "Modern art is not a farcical matter," and the play doesn't think that modern art is is a farcical matter, but one of the character <laughs> slags it off, and if other people in the audience laugh at that, it becomes a very volatile situation, and um, what people would now would call not a safe space for people who have certain ideas and it was a definitely a dangerous space but there's something about the volatility argumentativeness of that which i think is 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 life that's life itself yeah it's amazing i mean it's so interesting to hear you know because for me art is just like as i say it's this canonical piece this sort of hilarious sort of um quite safe staple play um but amazing that it started as uh, as uh you know anarchic and wild and dangerous and it's just really interesting to hear and it's really interesting to hear your your philosophy there on um teaching uh, or treating comedy as drama and tragedy and i think that leads us on quite well uh, to the norman conquests um uh, your your play crush today and um again sparing you no blushes i'm just gonna read a bit of a quote from alan Aitborn um from uh, 2011 um where he says, occasionally lightning strikes, like Matthew Watch's production of The Norman Conquest, which he did beautifully. When he sat down with the actors on the first day, he said, I believe these plays to be sad and truthful and funny. We get all of that if we approach them as if we were approaching Chekhov. And they did that. I spoke to one of the actors and he said, oh, Matthew's so fierce. If he did something funny, he would say, take it away, stop it. And it worked because the character is allowed to breathe and not do funny things that sometimes shortchange them to the audience. And I feel like that quote really um, encapsulates what you've just been saying. And it, so it sounds like that's a similar philosophy that you brought to the Norman Conquest and all that experience on art and the idea of making the popular artistic and the artistic popular kind of came together in this amazing trilogy that you did at the Old Vic. Um, is, is that true? Uh, yeah, very much so. The um, you know one of the characters in Norm Conquest, I think it's Tom, the vet, has just has this line. He says, "Funny thing, life," <laughs> and um, I think that I'm really interested in sort of I'm really interested in that. Life is um, life is a funny thing. It's a very very painful thing. Um, life is full of mistakes mostly made up of mistakes 
real life is um, <clears throat> full of anxiety, humiliation, and efforts to protect ourselves from anxiety and humiliation. And, um, and I think that uh, the sort of miracle of life is that it's so frequently funny. If it wasn't, it would be completely intolerable. Um, and I think what I, what I love about the Norman Conquests is it's a, it's a play that's absolutely, well, it's three plays, right? So it's, and, and it's completely sort of laden with aching, um, longing, disappointment, um, bitter regret, deep loneliness, um, simmering rage and despair. And it, 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 Abel's very, very good at sort of calling out the lie of normality. So he, he, he generally in his writing, he, he writes sort of sitcoms. And, you, and certainly in Norman Conquest, you recognise the good life. I don't know if you know, you, you know the good life from TV, classic yeah, sitcom. Brilliant TV show. Uh, yeah, brilliant. So you sort of recognise those tropes in him. <clears throat> but he, he, he sort of scatters quite shocking landmines um, in his work and and the and sort of rawness and and depth of um, depths which create a kind of fearful laughter, which I think is one of the best forms of laughter. You get it in farce a lot. The idea of farce is to try to generate fearful laughter to get the audience so scared of whether that door's going to open or not at the wrong time <laughs> and who's going to come through it that their laughter is is very febrile and out of control. And I'm not a big one. You know, I love comedy. 80% of probably what I direct is comedy. And I love comedy. But 80% of what I turn down or avoid <clears throat> is comedy as well, because there's a certain kind of comedy which is gag-driven and the audience feels safe. Um, but I think with what I love about Eightborn is one of the writers where the audience don't completely feel safe. Um, so, yeah, we, and, and I did. When I when I started rehearsals for it, I said to the cast, I've never directed Chekhov, but I have a feeling that these plays set in a house in the country with this family coming together and all of this <clears throat> feelings of being <clears throat> trapped and suffocated in normal life um, sort of bursting out of these characters in, in an out of control way, um, and the ennui and the and even the um, suicidal urges of the characters. I said all of these r remind me of of what a Chekhov should probably be full of, and in that, of course, you get the absurdity and the clowning and just the great, great, you know, great gags. Oh, good old fashioned. Gag. Somebody says, "I've got, I've got a piece of paper here, Joe." With well, the lines that made me laugh, howl with laughter, uh, out loud when I was when I was <laughs> listening to it the other day. And so we're going to have to bear with me during the course of this chat. I'm going to keep diving back in to a zinger, but you know, <laughs> some of them are quite simple. Um, Norman says, "I'm just magnetic or something." Ruth, you're not magnetic, Norman. Not at all. You are odious. You are deceitful odious, conceited, self-centred, selfish, inconsiderate, and shallow, Norman. I'm not shallow. <laughs> <laughs> <Classic>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
just good off. I mean, that is that's sort of um, Morecambe and Wise, you know, standard of of uh, comedy. There's, there's <clears throat> but it's yeah, it's full of yeah, it's full of great comic lines, but it's built on pain. And is that what you look for in your comedy then? Like, because it seems that um, you have this amazing ability to sort of like X-ray a play, particularly comedies, to see its bones underneath it. It's something Ben Brantley mentioned about your um, Boeing Boeing production as well. And on the surface, the premise of these plays, interestingly, both Norman Conquest and Boeing Boeing, um, about sort of philanderers, I suppose, um, feel in some way a bit creaky and a bit odd, but it, always in your productions... Um, they seem to reveal themselves in these new ways. Um, and, and do you think like that, the accessing the trauma of that and the heart of that um, is, is what allows you to do that? And is that something you see when you read the play or does that take a bit of time for you to dig into and, and uncover? I'm really drawn to stories where there's something happening on the surface, which is apparently at first glance benign. Um, but... Uh, below the surface, there's this huge sort of iceberg, the rest of the iceberg of um, of emotion, and so I, 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 I'm, I'm sort of drawn to those things, and that also brings up order and chaos, order on the surface, chaos underneath, which I like, and I think, yeah, it was interesting. I was doing these sex comedies, The Norman Conquest and Boeing Boeing, in quite close proximity. And I was realising those are both very good examples of sex comedy in the sense of what sex represents is this kind of out-of-control, animalistic sort of passion and how what a struggle it is to for human beings to behave appropriately all the time. Um, in, in lots, not not only in terms of sex, but in, in lots of different ways, to behave sensibly um, is is to go against a whole um, is is exactly what we should do. By the way, <laughs> obviously, I'm not, I'm not advocating the <laughs> anarchy, but behave sensibly is really important. But it, it it's not doesn't come naturally to human beings, and which is why. You know, chaos is such a, a danger, and we have so many rules, but it's also such an exciting thing to explore. I mean, you know, it happens all the time in drama, doesn't it? And and I don't know, the if you think of Midsummer Night's Dream is deliberately a, 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 a structure which goes out into the green world, into the forest, where all hell breaks loose and all conventions are turned upside down and um, sexual passion is is unleashed and is wild and um, the responsibilities are shared and contrasting the sort of order of the supposed order of the court at the beginning and end of that play. And it's not a, an original idea at all, but, you know, there's this thing, I, I think whatever it is about that human beings are craving a kind of, there's part of us which, which longs for freedom, which is why we are rightly intolerant of anything that traps people or um, controls people. But on the other hand, we need a kind of agreed degree of um, restraint and control in our lives in order for the chaos not to overwhelm us. But there's a really exciting bit in the end of 
um, at the end, near the end of one of the plays in this, where Norman and Reg are in the garden. <laughs> and Norman is like Dionysus. He's, he drinks this dandelion wine, even though Tom warns him that the last time he had that, he lost the, he lost the use of half of his face. But nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, Norman drinks the wine and, and he exudes a sort of fiery, um, uh, you know, Dionysian uh, fervour um, that is completely contagious and triggers everybody else into this, into this sort of uh, release. But he's there with Reg, who's, Reg who is a, a sort of golf, golfer at the weekend and um, very, very sort of staid, boring kind of character. Um, talks a lot about the, the, the best route to get there and which roads to take and which roads not to take. Anyway, so Norman is in the garden in the middle of the night or late at night with Reg. And he says, let's, let's you and me and Tom, let's take a couple of weeks and just go. And Reg says, go where? And Norman says, anywhere. Just, just, just we men. Reg says, "You mean a holiday?" Norman says, "Not a holiday. That sounds so damn conventional. I want us to just go and see things, and taste things, and smell things, and touch things, touch trees and grass and earth. Let's touch earth together, Reg." And Reg says, "Where were you thinking of going?" And Norman says, "Everywhere. Let's see everywhere." Let's be able to say we have seen and experienced everything. And Mitch says, we'd have to be going some to do that in two weeks, wouldn't we? (laughs) 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 Yeah, I I don't know. You see, I just find the... I find the... You know, that's a good... That's a good gag, but I just find there's so much, um, I don't know, there's so much much humanity and that idea of life is just not giving any of us enough most of the time. You know, uh, it's, 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 um, Mm. yeah, it's, it doesn't, it's, our appetites are bigger than what's possible for us. Either economically we're held back, or you know, class system holds us back, or <clears throat> the conventions of life are the the yeah, just the, um, the sort of materialism of of the hours that we have to work and why and uh, capitalism and all of these shackles, and it just doesn't fit. fit. And and sort of sex is 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 a metaphor, if you like, for freedom and, and for these urges and these needs to, to, to find more. And, and, yeah, I mean, to answer your <clears throat> question about, you know, what do I know going in? I saw, I'm, so I'm attracted to these kind of worlds, but then once you get stuck in with the right actors, so the casting is so important. You, you sort of act, you need actors who've naturally got dramatic depth, but have got, comic antennae so they're not worried about is this funny or not they just know what's funny and that's not their that they know that that's not their there's no effort going in that direction but they are really interested in the depression in the darkness in the in the anxiety and the, the, um 
and all of those things. And and once you've got actors who are doing that and you're in the rehearsal room with them, then the, 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 the thing, the interesting stuff really starts to build because you have to answer questions. What was this character doing last week or this morning or last year? What's their marriage been like? Um, <clears throat> what's their day-to-day? What did they feel like they wanted to be when they grew up when they were a kid? And that's when the sort of X-ray process you talk about really ha- happens. You have to have conversations about the rest of the iceberg, the stuff that's below the surface. Um, and, you know, good writing allows for those conversations. There are some scripts that are built like, uh, if you like, like a theme park, like Disneyland, in that you can go on that path over there around that building in a, in a sort of Disneyland setting, but you'll reach a wall if you do, because the park has got limits. It's got a boundary fence that looks like a forest that goes on forever. It's got some dinosaurs coming out of it. But if you go into the forest, you'll reach a chain chain link fence with barbed wire on it at some point. And that path that looks like it's an old medieval path going over a bridge and over there um, comes to an end. And there's a there's a big uh, sort of cordoned off trash area for trash and bins and, um, I don't know, electrical boxes. So none of it's real. But whereas good writing is like real landscape, if you want to go through the woods for a, a while, go off the path through the woods and you'll find more woods and more things and more story. And uh, if you go over that hill, there's another hill. And then there's a village that, that the script didn't even tell you was there, but you can draw on it. And um, so I think that the Norman Conquest is lovely because it really does have that kind of uh, breadth of landscape about it. And you can keep imagining the lives beyond the play. And if you, as you keep imagining them and talking about them, they will fuel, you know, they will fuel the performances and the production. And there's a bit, you know, um, he's a, he's a sitcom writer, Aitbourne and, uh, and he's good at comedy, but there's a section in this play, which is, uh, I think it's the third scene in Living Together in the living room, when the three siblings are alone without their partners, and they're alone together. And the writing there is some of the greatest writing I know in any play ever. It's really extraordinary writing. It's, It's simple, but it completely captures the sort of mutual resonance and dissonance of a family and at one point there's two sisters and a brother uh you know all grown up and and at one point the two sisters reveal for the first time in that scene that they had secretly watched their brother propose to his wife in the garden out of the window of the living room (laughs) and years ago and that one of the sisters had been whispering say no say no (laughs) <laughs> and uh and and it's an amazing and the brother didn't know that and and his marriage is a right old mess now and you know that that scene when that scene's being properly acted you get a brilliant sense of well i did this sense of like oh when we're in those moments in life those pivotal moments like proposing to somebody or making choices and things like that how many people are watching us like the sisters through the window 
or like the audience spying on this play or like God watching or whatever you, you believe, how many people are watching us make our choices and our say, a willingness to avoid our mistakes. And it's, that's a very, very Jacobian thing, I think, and really s- stunning, stunning writing. And it's sort of talking about the production of The Royal Conquest, which I saw at the Old Vic, I was lucky enough to see them all in a day. I think it was the press day. Um, and they're sort of exceptional for being so interconnected. But what really yeah. struck me as well was it was in the round at the Old Vic, which to me as a director is a really hard way to do comedy. Um, and is that was that a, a, a choice by you and the designer? Or was the Old Vic already in the round and so you had to do it in the round? Or how did that come about? So Alan Aitborn's theatre in Scarborough that I went to growing up was an in-the-round theatre. And he's been a great sort of contributor to that form of theatre in this country. Uh, one of the biggest, probably definitely I would say the biggest exponent of it in this country. And um, the interesting thing about in-the-round theatre, particularly if you're writing sitcoms, um, is that there's no scenery. There's only furniture and props and a floor. So if you watch a sitcom on TV or a soap, let's say The Good Life or any soap, um, or if you watch a conventional play in a proscenium setting, what you've, what, what you've got to have is walls with wallpaper on them and a, a, and a standard lamp or bookshelves and doors and things like that. Before you know it, you've got incredibly conventional scenery. And what's so clever about In the Round is that Aitborn can put really conventional stuff their characters in certain situations, very recognisable. They can be in their living room or their dining room or in their office at work or these different places. But you don't have to provide any of the naturalistic conventional trappings. You can't have walls because the audience is all the way around. And instead what you do is you watch these sort of sometimes Chekhovian, sometimes kind of Mike Lee kind of situations, sometimes the good life type things. You watch these situations sitcom situations and in the background you're looking at people watching and that's a very very powerful thing so when someone's lying or having a secret moment or an illicit moment with another character you're looking through that and you're seeing people sitting watching you thinking is that person actually married to that person or are they really in a relationship over the other side of the theater there or have they come with come in (laughs) secret with a somebody that having some secret relationship or what's going on is that when that person talks about their life being desperate and unfulfilled and you're looking at the other side, you can see dozens of people watching and laughing or even crying. And then you're thinking, yeah, look at all of us. We've got this whole lot of people who are desperate, unfulfilled in different ways and whatever it is. So it's a great way of bypassing boring, conventional, traditional scenery. And, and, and not only that, it, it amplifies this um, unexpected sort of depth. And the way you um, put them together is, again, there's a great uh, quote um, from Aikborn about how he wrote them, um, which is that he sat down, he said, I've sat down, I wrote three scene ones, followed by three scene twos and so on. He wrote them crossways as he explains it. Um, uh, And then he had to figure out if when he put them together sort of downwards, they worked as individual plays. When you were... in that rehearsal process of putting them together, is it one play at a time? Did you all flatten them out so that you had three spaces going on chronologically? Like how, how did you and the cast, because that 
to me, it, it strikes me that form of three plays that are sort of happening simultaneously is one of the most exciting provocations of, of these scripts. And I'm just wondering if, how, how you approach that in a, re- in a rehearsal process. Yeah, well, it is very exciting. I'm, I was trying to think about this last night. I was trying to remember how we rehearsed it, and I couldn't really remember. I think we had something like nine weeks. <clears throat> so that would break down as three weeks per play, which is pretty fast going. You know, I would normally do a play in, I'd, I'd ideally do a play in five weeks, and four would be pushing it. And But I think we had nine, and I think we did actually... Um, I think we may have rehearsed chronologically in terms of time. So do the Saturday, all the Saturday nights and all the Sunday mornings and all the Sunday nights and all the Monday mornings together. I have a feeling we did do that. But um, then having sort of just had a, had a, that created a sort of map of what, of events as they occurred in the order they occurred in, which was a useful map to have. But then it became important to know what the tonal character of each individual play was as a play. Um, <clears throat> so, and and they and and to make the play because you know some audience I figured wouldn't come and see three plays; they were going to see one. So you have to make it feel cohesive and coherent as each one of them feel cohesive and coherent as an individual play. So, and apart from anything, unless you do everything that's in one location at a time. <laughs> You've got to keep um, moving around <laughs> furniture. So but the best, the easiest thing was to to just get that bit out of the way, the mapping of it, and then to focus on them as individual plays so you could dig down. You, you know, a lot of directing, isn't it, is um, tempo and shaping dynamics. And so you need to take the, a, a play as a whole score as a piece of music and to know how to shape that you know they there's a similar argument isn't there with um uh betrayal that um goes backwards in time pinter's betrayal and also a play on my favorite plays list and um the uh it doesn't help at all to rehearse that i've directed that play it doesn't help at all to rehearse that in the right direction in the right order you have to rehearse it going backwards as it is in the script. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, and I think what it, it, it's so interesting understanding that, of course, they are a trilogy, but they have to work individually. And I feel like that that meant a lot to Aikborn as well, didn't it? He, he, he talked a lot about him, him having a sort of holiday audience up in Scarborough and that they might not be around for all three plays. Right. Um, so that I suppose it feels like it was important for both you and he that you could watch one and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And he also said, um, he said, usually when I write a play, I feel my head is peering from a foxhole while the critics take pot shots. With the trilogy, I felt like I was standing up. Um, so it sounds like the trilogy was a real gamble for him in a way and quite a bold move to make and for Scarborough and for his his career. Did did you have a sense of that in the production? Because I suppose, you know, if the if if the audience don't like one play, it's unlikely they're going to like the other two. Um, d- did that have any dynamic for you? That sense of anxiety around that, or um, did it always feel like um, that the energy was good and you felt like these were the right plays to be doing that they go down well? I was really aware of the fact that people would say to us and say to our box office team, "I'm only going to see one play. Which should it be?" And I knew that the critics would 
want to write that. If you only see one play, make sure it's so-and-so, so-and-so. <clears throat> and I, obviously that would have been really uh, sort of defeating the exercise. Um, but, it, you know, in any event, you're going to go looking, aren't you, in rehearsals, you're going to go looking for what's brilliant about every scene you're working on. So it was just a question of really applying that. And <clears throat> fortunately, with this trilogy, there are set piece, brilliant set piece moments in all of the plays. And, um, you know, I, like I said, there's that incredible scene in Living Together when the three siblings are together. <clears throat> in the garden, there's wonderful, wild extremes in the garden, people throwing themselves. The physicality of the stuff in the garden is extraordinary. And in table manners, of course, said in the dining room, there's the classic, classic mealtime when um, one of the chairs has to have to bring you from the other room and they, all of them gather around to eat this, to have this banquet, in inverted commas, together. Mm -hmm. There's no food left in the house. And uh, one of the chairs is way, way too small and, so, and only brings Tom up to chin height <laughs> at, the, at the table. Um, so and that's a, that's, a, that's a great set piece. Um, <clears throat> another actor that I've worked with a lot in my life is, is Michael Gambon, who I love very much. And he actually played in the original cast of the Norman Conquest. He played Tom the Vet. And we used to laugh such a lot about he, he when I was working with him on another play, he would remember that scene of, of sitting <laughs> sitting at the table um, <laughs> with his chin and, and how the audience, you know, you have to hold up, you have to hold the dialogue quite a bit in that scene for audience laughter because of just the situation. That's a brilliant visual gag. <laughs> <clears throat> and are there other, any other um, any other zingers that you've got on your... Yes, I've got a couple of other zingers. The, the, there are two things. There are two really good quotes. The um, I want to say one of them... So, you know, you can't control what an audience feels and thinks, but you do have goals as a director. And it felt really important to me that the sadness and um, frustration and passion and all of those things, but there's a sort of ennui and regret and pain in these plays that I really thought I owe it to Aitborn to make sure that this really resonates. And <clears throat> sometimes that's in the silences and the pauses and the silent weeping of a character or trembling or something, those really sort of, graphic moments but it can even be in a, in the laugh moments as well a kind of sadness and there's one sort of there's a couple of great great lines of defeat and compromise and human sort of failure put into into funny moments but well, moments no sad moments but moments that also induce laughter and one of them is Sarah and Reg so they're married to each other they got a pretty dismal marriage by now but it's surviving it's clung they clung on and he comes down for breakfast at one point, and she says, um, I thought you were going to make yourself some toast. And Reg says, oh, I don't know. I looked at the grill, and I looked at the loaf, and I thought, that's a lot of effort for a piece of toast. It's <laughs> 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 uh, something oh, that, uh, that is described by one of the characters as he's got something like Burmese inertia, he's got some sort of <laughs> tropical disease or something. But the, I just think that's, 
I mean, I'm surely that's a lockdown. Surely that's a lockdown thing. I looked at the grill. I looked at the loaf. That's a lot of effort for a piece of toast. It, it doesn't bother. And then the um, the other thing, the other thing this 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 trilogy has, right at the end of the garden play, and all these in plays are like I say, wonderful. They've got wonderful moments in them that are so human. I I think I hope they speak to everybody, but it also includes at the end of this. Um, at the end of this play, I think surely the worst, most um, inadequate, failing proposal that's ever been written, ever existed anywhere, where Tom, the, <laughs> the, the hapless vet, finally plucks up courage to propose to Annie. Um, and uh, at the, before it's all, before the weekend is over, and they're there together. The birds are singing in the background. It's an English sort of garden. Sun, sun is shining in the sky. And none of the um, idyll that, that implies is anywhere to be found. It's just a, a, it's just a desperately bleak situation. And he says, Annie, <laughs> Annie, would you like me to marry you? I would like me to marry you may i i want to <laughs> to which she replies i don't i don't know i don't know i'll see and it's i mean for goodness sake that is and and it was you know it was a great part so that was ben miles that was ben miles playing in, in the production that i was lucky to direct was stephen manger Paul Ritter, Amelia Bullmore, Amanda Root, Jessica Hines, and Ben Miles, all of them really, truly incredible. Total privilege to be with them. And to see him, uh, Ben, uh, proposing to um, to Jess in that scene like that. And it was acted, it was such a slow speech. It was so slow and painful. There were people <laughs> who could barely stay in their seats through the agony of watching, of witness, having to witness that. <laughs> that happen and i think that's that's great is you know is that is that funny yes it's funny it's agony at the same time and i i that's the sort of um mashup of feeling that i'm really attracted to and i think eight bond does so well yes i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more and yeah i think like um as you say that it's so clear in all your productions that that fault line is just what brings them alive and makes them so exciting um and um, I mean, that, that sort of brings us to a kind of nice end, uh, really, um, about talking about this incredible play. And just want to say thank you so much, Matthew, for being on and for being so open and honest. And uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad at the fork in the road near the beginning, we, we went down the exciting and fun, <laughs> truthful route. Um, like yeah, I'll, I'll have to do some patch up. I'll do the patch up work on that in the, the next couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's amazing. Well, look, thank you so much, Matthew. Really appreciate your time today. Amazing to have you on. And um, good luck with lungs. I think it's going to be really exciting. Thanks, Joe. It's good to talk to you. And, and good luck with uh, Sherman. And it's a wonderful theatre. And I hope you guys um, come through this uh, smoothly um, and as quickly for all of us as, as possible. 
Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. And likewise, the old Vic. I've no doubt you guys will come back stronger, but, um, you know, good luck uh, through this really difficult phase. Thank you. The brilliant Matthew Warchus, everyone. I absolutely loved talking to him about the Norman Conquest and hearing about his career. I honestly could listen to him all day talk about all things theatre. I am such a fanboy. It's so embarrassing. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you again for supporting the Olvik and the Sherman in these tough times. If you fancied making a donation to our theatres, no matter how big or small, it would be hugely appreciated. And you can do that at either the Sherman Theatre or Old Vic websites. Thank you again. Until next time, go gently and go safely. The Old Vic would like to thank principal partner Royal Bank of Canada and the T.S. Elliott Estate for their support. Sherman Theatre would like to thank the Arts Council Wales and everybody who supported us through this difficult time.